I don't want our thing to be taken into just shit talking. Yeah. Or being interpreted as just shit talking. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like on the Christianity thing, I've had significant amount of Bible study from a different context of, you know, symbolism and things like that. You know, there's a whole, there's a fascinating whole world of stuff with all that. So to, to your point about just shitting on everything that's Christian, right? I mean, I actually uh, did several years of study into prophecy and shit like that. I thought we did a pretty good job last week or a couple of days ago to to like balance <laughs> it. I thought no, I did too. Yeah, I, I mean, I it just, wasn't too bad. Just remembering to kind of like keep a a certain kind of understanding and openness, even when something is fucking stupid. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Big Hormone Enneagram. Welcome to Big Hormone Enneagram. Um, last time we were talking, we ended with talking about the instinctual drives and David was tying them into the classical elements. And uh, one of the things that I think is important to distinguish with the, the, the instincts in the Enneagram is that when we talk about instincts, there is on one hand, the biological instinctual drives that we share with other forms of life. And then there are the instincts in the context of type. So a lot of times this confuses people that are new to uh, the Enneagram, that there's a difference between talking about the drives as they are and as they're represented, um, you know, as across human beings and across other animals and how they impact us psychologically versus what happens when they become part of the type, which is when we become psychologically identified with the agendas and motivations of the instinctual drives. So you know, there's one thing to have a self-preservation drive or to describe self-preservation or qualities of self-preservation. It's another thing to be a self-preservation type. So I am not a self-preservation type, but Miss Nancy is. And (laughs) Miss Nancy uh, was anxious about (laughs) when we were starting tonight's recording because her sleep is extremely precious. Mm -hmm. And so... The energies around being a dominant self-pres or sexual or social, the, the quality of um, attention, what your attention is on, uh, what your attention is aroused by, where it goes to, what it's tracking, uh, the quality of um, what I call libidinal energy, like just like psychological energy, where that it's galvanized or not, depends on type. But there are ways of talking about the instinctual drives independence of type and how they play out in human beings, how they play out um, across cultures and how they play out uh, in terms of the imagery, symbolism and archetypes they evoke, which is a lot of what falls under David's specialty. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, what you just said, uh, trying to parse libidinal energy as maybe like the raw energy spark plug of all kinds of uh psychological uh and energies in the body right 
but that's mm. that's sort of the the fuel how do you parse that libidinal energy um that kind of that's lighting up the whole circuit board no matter your instinctual stacking parsing that from the sexual instinct and then also parsing the fact that human beings are super social creatures from the social instinct parsing right. those two apart yeah i felt like the the instincts were the most confusing part of getting into the enneagram for me well cuz yeah when i got into the enneagram it, it just seemed like there was no coherence whatsoever um, about what the instincts meant, especially around sexual and social. It for a long time, I'm talking like years, trying to make sense of the material available. And when those when you guys posted, I think it was you, John, that posted this in EIDB, the the oh, Russ's workshops. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure it was. So when that happened, it seemed like something new was happening because I hadn't seen anything like that yeah. um, before. And the ideas were completely against all the stuff that was available. And I've always wondered, because you probably know more about the behind the scenes, like how big of a deal was that at that time? Um, did like in terms of the ripple effect did how did that come about that Russ took that up you know a focus on the instincts in that way and have you noticed a big change since then that was like what eight years ago eight, probably longer um so good questions um you know i think don and russ had been working together on instinct stuff for a while and i don't know who you know, set forth what, but basically, um, together, they realized that the instinctual drives were actually instinctual drives, meaning that the name was not lying, mm -hmm. that they, um, they actually described animal biology, mm -hmm. and that in, in as, as Russ put it to me, um, the instincts were independent variables of type, meaning they could be seen as their own system they weren't dependent variables, which is what the subtypes are, meaning uh, little uh, like subdivisions of the type. The, mm -hmm. the subdivisions, as we talked about the other day, were are based in uh, Naranjo seeing type and instinct as uh, based on a Gurdjieffian schema of the subdivision of centers. Mm -hmm. And um, he was he saw it through the based on this is according to, to russ and who spoke with naranjo um naranjo was inspired by his uh his mentor a guy named molina i can't remember is it armando or something molina um and so you know in in the scheme in the gurdjieff work uh the body center is called the moving center because it's the center of our movement and uh which is different than the instinctive center, uh, which a lot of times in Enneagram teachings, instinctive center and body center are used interchangeably, but that's mixing up something. And the instinctive center is, a, is the center that has the instincts. In I believe so. Gurdjieff, okay. didn't, <clears throat> Gurdjieff didn't specify it, but he said that the, the instinctive center could be divided into 
three centers and that those three centers had a positive and negative polarity. So kind of like six altogether. Okay. But um, I take the positive and negative polarity of, you know, I, I take the instinctive center to be the instinctual drives and the positive or negative can mean uh, they can be co-opted by the personality and become a part of the personality's um, mechanism of identification. Fixation. Yeah, fixation, or uh, they can be actually in service of the well-being of the body. And so in this, uh, Nicole, Nicole uh, <coughs> excuse me, Maurice Nicole is one of the students at Gurdjieff who elaborated this system a little bit more or this subdivision. And so, for example, you know, in the, let's take the, I'll take the emotional center because I'm a feeling type. So in the emotional center, you could have the, uh, they would divide it by the moving parts of the emotional center, which is the body center part of the emotional center, the emotional part of the emotional center, and the intellectual part of the emo- emotional center. Mm-hmm. And Naranjo, and I think I think there's something really to this, where mm-hmm. he was looking at, okay, maybe then that means that type is based in these divisions of centers, which I think there's a lot of validity to this and a lot to uncover through this lens. So like, because a two, for example, is an emotional type, but they scramble the emotional center and the body moving center, Mm -hmm. they have to act on their feelings. Uh, They could be considered the moving part of the emotional center. So that'd be two. Mm -hmm. Three is a little more complicated because people don't necessarily see three as super emotional, but they represent the struggle of the emotional center in general. They'd be the emotional part of the emotional center. Hmm. And according to the scheme uh, four, they use the mental center to stimulate or to uh, reinforce the identification of the emotional center. So as the four, I would be representing the intellectual part of the emotional center. And it goes on like this. Um, you know, and then it's an, it'd be an interesting question to, to sort of p- pick this apart. Like it would the moving part of the intellectual center be the seven, right? Yeah. <clears throat> um, probably. Anyway, uh, then in addition to this division, Naranjo saw the instincts as correlating with each center. So he saw for some reason, and I get, like we mm-hmm. talked about before, there's a little bit intuitive thing that makes sense, but I don't think it works. He, uh, he saw in self-preservation as correlating with the body center. He saw sexual as correlating with the emotional center and social correlating with the intellectual center. And again, there is something to it, but it's only vague. Mm-hmm. And so I identify as a sexual four. So I'd be considered the emotional part of the intellectual part of the emotional center. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that identifying in sexual with emotional is why people mistakenly believe sexual is one-on-one intimacy. Mm. There's also... The um, qualities that we associate <clears throat> to the heart um, that are similar to qualities that we associate with sort of libidinal sexual excitation and energy. For example, cold-hearted, warm-hearted, and then with sexuality, someone's hot 
or someone's frigid, right? So there's a tangle that happens there, I think is another reason why there's maybe an intuitive connection between them, although maybe ultimately we'd say it's incorrect, but it's maybe one reason why there's somewhat of a natural tangle that happens conceptually. And even uh, culturally speaking, there's a lot of conflation between emotion and sexuality. Right. And, uh, you know, that a lot, a lot of time, like Gurdjieff was very clear. He said that the sex center, meaning the genital. So to back up, Gurdjieff described seven centers. There's the three basic centers, the body, the heart, and the mind. In addition, there are two higher centers, the higher intellectual center and the higher emotional center. And then in the body, the body, the moving center, he said also features the instinctive center and the sex center. Mm-hmm. And the sex center is not the sexual drive. It's the re- reproductive organs. And Gurdjieff uh, was very clear that the, that the sex center should have sex, meaning uh, while it's, it's perfectly fine and natural and normal and wonderful to bring emotion into sexuality, don't confuse the two. And don't use sexuality as a way to resolve emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. Likewise, he, like this is actually really funny. Um, Gurdjieff was very against masturbation, surprisingly, because really? uh, yeah, it was really That's weird. Strange. He, he sh- like uh, he should have definitely masturbated more because he had a lot of kids <laughs> with a lot of different women. <laughs> but uh, he, 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 he called masturbation <laughs> called masturbation the the war of five against one, which is pretty funny. What? Which means <laughs> what is happening? Five fingers. fingers. Oh my god! <laughs> wow. All right, that's a very male view on it. <laughs> and uh, women use two hands. In other words. <laughs> <laughs> and he's using a war at, war, war the metaphor as an eight. Yeah, as an eight. Jeez. You know. But uh, but you know he was the reason I think he was he was against masturbation was not because self pleasing is bad, but because he was worried. I think about uh, people using the mental center to stimulate the sex center, detangling yeah. the centers. Exactly. He was all, you know, I mean, inner work is about detangling the centers. And so how do you, uh, you know, how do we conflate the centers on all different levels? And, you know, a major uh, way we fall asleep with the sex center is using fantasy or emotion to stimulate the sex center rather than the Mm -hmm. sex center stimulating the sex center. So can you unpack that? What does that mean that for example, how would you use the intellectual center? Is it just like fantasizing about, um, let's say you're fantasizing about a, a previous sexual act that is like through the imagery of, of that act. Is that using the intellectual center to turn yourself on? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, and I'm not, you know, just interpreting Gurdjieff is one thing, uh, you know, I think that there's a certain level where that's harmless and normal and natural. And because we don't compartmentalize our mind from our bodies and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I think he was really trying to speak against how much we unconsciously scramble the centers. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your, our types are based in the ways that our, our centers do their wrong work. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, the whole ego is based on the way we do our wrong work. And so one of the ways that the ego is reinforced through sexuality is through the wrong work of centers. So, um, you know, it's not so much about adopting like a rigid self-control over oneself, but becoming aware of like, how do we turn ourselves on? And in the, in the realm of sexuality, what's challenging is that our culture, you know, we have we generally aim towards long-term monogamous relationships and human beings prior to agriculture. So say anthropologists were not um, in monogamous relationships for very long. So, you know, there was a lot of free shared sexuality. So the, um, the issue of needing to kind of revitalize a monogamous sexual relationship that wasn't, didn't have fire uh, wasn't as much of an issue. Mm-hmm. Right. The scrambling these centers wasn't an issue as much in that sense. Exactly, right. Yeah, I will say that when, um, this is semi on topic, when um, we, you did a breathwork session with me, like a short breathwork session, um, when I came out of it, I was actually using my eyes to see, which, see, which sounds like dumb, but... Nope. It, I mean, like everything was so bright and so colorful. Mm. It was like painful and, and things were like moving that shouldn't have been moving. Mm-hmm. And it was just crazy. It blew my mind. It was like going on for hours and you were like, yeah, you're using your eyes to see instead of everything else. And well, what, right. Awesome. Yeah. What's, what is the everything else? What's the opposite of using your eyes to see what, or what was, what were you doing before? How well, that's you- a great question. <laughs> I don't know what I do on an average day-to-day basis. I just know that it was different for those few hours after the breathwork session. I've only done one, so I really can't. Well, is one way to say it, I mean, is it relate to the image triad heart center thing of sort of looking at mirrors and looking for mirrors instead of looking or something? Or does that make any sense? Do you know what I mean? Like, I've never heard of that, but I, that sounds, it sounds familiar. Like I understand what you're saying, but I've never heard any, any of you talk about that. Well, I, I would imagine it's that it's like, cause they explain in, you know, some kind of psychological things that what you're seeing, that you're filling in the gap in what you're seeing a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so mm. I would imagine that when you, get really mm. present to what that sense what you're really receiving from that sense you're not doing that and so it's like a crystal clear um like when people lose their other senses that that everything gets put mm. into that one um sense and so they it gets really sharp mm-hmm. because they're not filling in the gaps with other other I, modes of perception i could imagine a beingness of seeing being maybe related also to sort of things being wiped of their labels and just being what they are. I don't know if that means anything. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. I think definitely that's part of it. And uh, so an interesting future topic potentially uh, that's very complicated is uh, the ray of creation or higher worlds, but that's a whole thing. But just in terms of like, I think, like, I think everything you're speaking to y'all are speaking to is accurate that 
you know, that on one hand, um, when we see generally, there is a part of our brain that is a filing cabinet that is just sort of going, okay, like I see book, desk, uh, computer, whatever. And I'm just sort of, it's like everything becomes appropriated by previous memories of objects and situations that I have. And very rarely do we encounter a novel situation that's truly novel in the sense of inviting us to see something that isn't already sort of stored in our psyche, mm -hmm. that, you know, not an object relation or something like that. Um, and there's an emotional component. There is a mental component and there's a physical component, like the body taking things to be objects. But also in terms of our levels of presence, when we're not, when we're just in our average state, we're not really present to our experience. And so it's this mechanism of imposing associations over our experience. And we're not really seeing, we're sort of gesturing towards seeing. But then when we start to become present, uh, you know, it's the difference between, like the word I like to use is noticing where we're noticing what's in front of us rather than just receiving it passively. That sounds like it's a new thing every time, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. There's a, there is something new to discover because it's in the moment mm -hmm. when you're just passively seeing, uh, you're not discovering because you're just sort of filling in the blanks or labeling like book, book. That's another book. That's a drawing. That's a, what I'm, you know, statue, whatever. Um, you're not really encountering it. To notice something means some part of you is actually meeting the present experience and it's getting past the psychological shorthand. Hmm. Oh. And, it, and it has a quality of vibrancy that's that's unusual for our normal state. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like what Nancy might have experienced. Right. Yeah. And after kind of learning um, breath work and how to at least get myself somewhat present in my body, which I'm still totally working on not a pro at um i've used it in situations where i'm in like pain to kind of check in and see because this is kind of where my self-pres will kick in and take over if i'm in discomfort or pain i will just no matter how <laughs> what level the pain is at i'll be like i can't do anything i will shut down yeah um and that's how like instincts kind of tend to work. So I've been using breathing to check in and see, okay, what level is this pain actually at? Because I don't actually know. And sometimes I'll check in and it's not even pain. It's something completely different. It's just my brain saying, okay, there's something here and it's now bad. Okay, pain. So it's interesting how a lack of presence can kind of just relabel something to be completely different than it is. So when it's not actually pain, what are you experiencing? Sometimes it'll just be like pressure or um, like shifting in energy or just like movement in the body. Like just um, an unusual state for the body to be in? Yeah, like, a, like, you know, just a twinge or a muscle twitch or like whatever it is, um, just different than the average state of being. Hmm. And even if it is legit pain, it becomes less when I become present. So how does your relationship to the pain shift when you're more present? Uh, it's not a full body experience. It's a very localized experience. Mm -hmm. So, so you're, it doesn't, you're, you're, yeah, it doesn't take me over. You're like less identified with it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, the uh, conscious breathing helps to create some kind of, uh, you know, it helps you be more present for one thing. Because, I mean, just the effort to be conscious of a normally unconscious process brings you into presence. But also the nervous system calms down a bit. And when the nervous system is calmer, your sort of inner perception of yourself and your state is much clearer. And so, yeah, it's like, whether it's pain, physical pain, or any other kind of distress, when we breathe consciously with it, generally the emotional extra whatever, the little twists that we put to, to our physical states lessens, and we can actually uh, be with it respond more appropriately intelligently to it and uh not react so strongly and not let it pollute the whole sense of our awareness mm-hmm. now i'm thinking about sexual pain what is that Ooh, that's something fun to play with <laughs> yeah it seems self-presence is so easy to sort of map out because i mean it's in your body yeah um i was talking, talking like heartache or like well, just like, you know, what, what, just trying to pinpoint for me, how do I, in the style of my type, react to um, pain relative sex- to the sexual instinct? Right. Mm-hmm. Like stress related to that. Oh, um, I is totally that- thought you, saw, you meant masochism. <laughs> it could be that too. <laughs> damn it <laughs> continue you made it really we, we, concrete we all know who the real freak on this call is. <laughs> i was like whips chains let's go <laughs> i'm talking about real pain nancy <laughs> uh, fuck that <laughs> i'm talking about being ignored by the person i'm interested in <laughs> The only thing that matters. Oh, oh man. Well, just like thinking about it is because uh, it's real easy to re- uh, relate to or to explain what uh, self press stress or pain is like on a moment, hourly, daily basis, but it's not as easy to explain what that is uh, for sexual because it is like the personality is reacting to the need to be alluring and interesting and, and to find something to charge yourself up with and to and so i think for me i think what i've noticed in like trying to meditate and noticing that my personality is always needing to like have to find the next kind of um i have to find the next thing that can i don't know like charge things up like it's always a need of of uh there has to be something that I can jump into, like a um, a thing that can be really interesting and can really open things up or completely turn everything upside down. Even if just for, even if it's just for like, uh, I don't know. It feels like there's can always this feeling of emptiness that if I'm not doing that, if I'm not creating something, that feels like I'm going into a new place that I've never been to before that's completely interesting to me and this is going to be a mind-blowing experience if I'm not doing that it's like I'm not alive <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not living and it's just the, the worst feeling and I'm not really conscious of this and and so I tend to cover it up with a lot of activity or just doing things and I'm not realizing that I'm 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 feeling this sort of stress of not having anything does that make sense, John? Yeah, what you're what you're speaking to is 
So there's sort of sort of two aspects. When it comes to our instinct, no matter what our dominant instinct is, there's on one hand, yeah, like like the physical sensation and physical pains and stuff like this. But even for self-preservation, there's you know like the longing to feel home. You know, yeah. like that mm-hmm. that sense of one's like real home or that real sense of like rest or being held Mm -hmm. uh like you know like a lot of self-preses will have like comfort food and that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and it's it's like the emotional sense of well-being that's tied into that it's not so much the food itself because it might even be junk food but it's that sense of of nourishment and holding and that's a holdover from uh you know when we were babies and like our first experience of contact and love came through breastfeeding it came through being held and it came through uh feeling regulated yeah and so mm-hmm. all the instincts are about different kinds of regulation and because they're about different kinds of regulation they're all unconsciously tied to our infancy and mom and the experience when we were infants is that we didn't have a personality yet and so it's associated with love and it's associated with essence. Mm. And so no matter what our instinctual drive is, we unconsciously think we're going to get the essence quality of our type through our instincts. And so it feels not just like life or death. It feels like, uh, you know, like God turning its back on us. Yeah. And we don't get it. So, you know, through the, for the eight sexual eight, you know, I'm longing for that sense of, uh, you know, that, that power and vitality and bigness and boom of the moment, like more present. Yeah. As Nancy's speaking to, it's like the moment, the present moment is actually very alive and it's our personality that makes it very dead. And that quality of just being present is what the eight's heart really feels as their home. And so, through the lens of type, it's like, oh, I associate the last experience I had with that quality with this certain part of my instinctual development in infancy. For a sexual type, it's going to be, oh, through a rapprochement conflict and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, when I was tr- like, when as a little kid, after you uh, start to separate psychologically and physically from your mother, there's this period of expansiveness that's very self pres expansiveness of like, the little kid, uh, it's called primary narcissism, but it's not really narcissism, but it's like, uh, you know, the kid feels like they're running around on the playground or something and they bump their head and they look at mom. And if mom doesn't get upset, then they're like, okay, I'm fine. And then they get up again and they're very robust and they like just learn to walk and explore the world. And then there's a point where the little kid realizes I'm vulnerable and I'm little, and I want to go back to the merge state that I was in that I just separated from. So libidinal energy gets focused back on mom. And the, the idea, unconsciously, is I'm going to penetrate her boundaries and surrender my boundaries so I can get back to the merge state. But at this point in the kid's development, the kid is too old to really do that. Mm-hmm. And the mom probably doesn't want that either because she's now appreciating that she's free from having to take care of an infant all the time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people mistake the sexual drive as a drive to merge. And there is the drive to merge because it's the drive to surrender and penetrate boundaries. But, you know, 
in terms of the this period of psychological developments, the little kid, the reason the little kid separated psychologically from mom in the first place was because he or she was getting overwhelmed by uh, all the unconscious stress in their mother's nervous system because little kids are like sponges. And that's what that that need to discharge that stress is what caused them to actually separate psychologically from mom. So at this point, when they want to re-establish merging, that affect, all that stress is still there. So in the sexual drive in adults, there's the coupling of the drive to merge, followed by the drive to separate again. It's like that drive to like like hook up or something, and then the next morning it's like, oh, okay, I gotta go, you gotta go, you know, like a kind of awkward <laughs> separation. And you know, with sexual types, it's not a romance drive. You know, it's like it might have romantic associations, but it's it's really about surrendering boundaries and then bringing them back up again because I have to shield myself from that overwhelm. And so, you know, that's kind of the constant tension. It's not a monogamy drive. Uh, but what's going on there too is that I'm not just reestablishing merging because merging is nice. It's because unconsciously this merge state is the experience of essence. So for the eight, it's like I'm going to experience through this chemistry, through this big event, I'm going to experience that aliveness that feels like it's part of my being. And then when the person doesn't reciprocate or they lose interest in me or they don't choose me, the kind of pain I feel is the pain of rejection from my origin basically i was more trying to figure out like how does that play out um on a day-to-day basis because i'm not i'm not in contact with someone i'm interested in very often um so it's not like but it's still kind of a something that i have to deal with the sense that there's nothing happening right now and it's not necessarily that I want to be talking to someone that I'm interested in or, but it can be just in the fact of um, just like I'm having a normal day and I just feel like there's nothing happening and I end up having to create the sense of, of aliveness uh, in being able to feel like I'm losing myself into something. Exactly. And And it could be like, I don't know, something creative or, um, getting attention in a group chat (laughs) or or creating like some drama on a thread, you know, just that kind of, that kind of shit, like get something going, you know? Well, Um, not, not to say there's anything wrong with any of that stuff, but it's that need to like, quote, make something happen. You know, that's that feeling of like, I'm not actually experiencing the aliveness that I need. You know, I have to generate it. And that's the whole personality whatever our type is, is generating whatever that quality Mm -hmm. is for the eight. It's like, I got to generate that aliveness and power and vitality. And one of the ways I do that is through pushing and expanding and kind of throwing my weight around and provoking. And, you know, so yeah, it's like the product, the the status of the ego is, is that alienation from what we want, but you know, it's primarily going to happen through the sexual lens if that's our dominant instinct. Uh Uh-huh. It's like we're social aid. It's like I need to be the galvanizing of my social milieu because it's like that's how something feels like it's happening. Which goes back to that we could, which goes back to we could be, Emika could be feeling the vibrancy of just what is right in front of him, essentially, in an ideal state. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that right? 
as opposed yeah. to the personality yeah. trying to create it, right? There, it's already there. In other words, exactly. yeah. Let, yeah, like what what Nancy was speaking to, right? You know, having the eyes to see that, and so inner work is developing the capacities and the being that can actually be in contact with the moment and not be so weak as to be overridden by these programs that we default to. Hmm. Good luck. So I guess being present would <laughs> being present would be like not feeling like the the present moment is so dead because I don't I because if I'm not present to it then I'm I'm not it is like a dull experience. It's all an illusion. You have to provoke something. The personality yeah. is an illusion. Yeah. So or the lens of the personality is dense. It's dense, so that quality of aliveness gets deadened through the density. Uh, so being present is not eliminating the feeling that reality is not the way you want it to be or what you're looking for. It's being present with the disappointment and the reaction to that feeling like it's not in that, you know, not as it should be, so to speak. Yeah. And that can be the doorway to recovering the in the moment experience of that kind of vibrancy. Hmm. So presence is never rejecting anything. And that's one of the challenging things about presence is that we think, oh man, I fucking hate this person and I hate myself <laughs> and I want to fucking do all this shit and blah, blah, blah. I better be in a po more positive state and presence is neutral, right. but it's including all that shit. That's why we were talking about last time with uh, some of the cultural facets of christianity that encourage a certain way of being that often invite repressing all the shit going on in the personality because if you can't actually be present with what's going on independently of your will independently of your intention just happening in the personality um then you can't be present so like we, you know speaking to fours being sort of sourpuss bitch, bitches and all this kind of stuff i'm a four by the way <laughs> uh, just in case anybody gets upset uh you know it's like it doesn't do any good to make us ourselves in a better mood but we can see and experience to be present with our mood and also be present with what's beyond just our mood and that actually sh makes a more holistic perspective rather than changing one state because that's just moving the pieces of the personality puzzle around and not actually changing your degree of being does that make sense uh -huh. Hmm. Yeah, this is all a great reminder for me. In uh, the narrative classes, all we did was be present, like, all the time, which is exhausting. Um, so yeah, this is a great reminder, because when you come back from that kind of state, it's really easy to just kind of hermit crab back into lack of presence, or what you believe totally. to be presence. Hmm. To circle back around to the what I was wondering about back then, John, when when you posted or when you went to did you go to that workshop to to that Russ workshop or did you just get the notes? Yeah, I was there. Okay. So, like, what what kind of a impact was that at the time? Like, based on what people were thinking, the instincts were. Um, well, because to me, it seemed like a really big deal, but I just I don't know 
if it actually made any difference back then? Well, you know, when it comes to in-person Enneagram events, the Enneagram is so powerful that generally most people that come away from any decently run Enneagram event, um, you know, experience some some degree of transformation or, or getting outside of their habit. So it always feels like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes it's hard to piece what specifically was the big deal um, or what led to the big deal, you know? So yeah. I think people appreciated and recognized uh, that it was a thing that was important and new, but at the same time, uh, you know, in my view, there was still more to develop. And I, I think that uh, uh, Russ would agree with that as well, because that was, you know, probably 10 years ago or something. Yeah. About 10 um, years ago. And so, you know, there's always more to learn and develop. And so it was a, you know, it was, yeah, it was a really great workshop, but I think that some people like, I think the same way that some people really immediately take to the Enneagram and some people like, this is, this is okay. Is it that sometimes there's an immediate recognition of like, whoa, the implications of this are like huge. And some people don't see it that way. And, and I think that part of the struggle with, um, with this, with any kind of new material is that people get very attached to and comfortable with old material Mm. and have a hard time discarding or seeing what's worth leaving behind of old material and keeping and integrating with new material. And so, you know, some of the reactions that we'll get from posting just material online that is new or challenging to what's generally accepted is labeled sometimes as being really nefarious or something right uh simply i think because people get so attached to certain outlooks and there's an emotional investment in the mental you know this is scram we're talking about scrambling the sexual center earlier scrambling emotion and intellectual center is getting emotionally attached to certain perspectives and part of the awake in intellectual center or mental center is being able to discard a perspective as soon as it is not useful or accurate or, you know, doesn't illuminate something. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how people, because I mean, Enneagram is kind of like a, I mean, when you first get into it, you don't know that much about it. And, um, but it's interesting to see that people quickly attach to well-known teachers. And maybe this is because I'm social last and I didn't really care about that, but people are, like look up who are the established texts and without knowing very much about the Enneagram, maybe a year into it, they're defending those established like Naranjo or and um, whatever authors that um, have maybe have only existed for a couple of decades and they're defending those, those interpretations and those texts like so um, passionately. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense like you just got into this thing you barely know who these people are and but because that uh, that authority is there it's like well we have to we have to respect this <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me well i like i studied philosophy in college yeah. and part of philosophy is the inquiry of challenging even those you respect the most mm-hmm. and you know that i think any there's there's different levels of thinking, but like most 
most people understand memorizing categories as thinking with the Enneagram, right? Like, oh, the basic fear and the basic blah, blah, blah of this type is this. And But I think every facet of understanding needs to be scrutinized and needs to come through a kind of an inner battle with the material so that you you've internalized it that it's not just you memorized a lot of facets or descriptions or anything and so like every you know every teacher has done their very best to contribute something of real understanding and uh has done their best to try to illuminate something and some more more successful than others and i don't think anybody well not everybody goes into the enneagram uh insincerely you know uh I think most people are really trying, most teachers are really trying to be sincere and I know a lot of them and they're all really great and they've all illuminated something. And, you know, no matter who it is, us included, there's always so much more to learn and discover. Yep. And there's some stuff that's bullshit and we can be wrong. And there's some stuff that we might be right, but it's about having the uh, background to discern the difference and the sincerity of our own inquiry to be able to admit when we're off yep. and uh, you know, to co- to love what's real and true more than we love impressing people with our ideas. And mm-hmm. sometimes that gets really lost because, you know, an idea gets challenged or something and it's not necessarily the teacher. Usually I think that people are invested in it's that, Oh, this concept makes me feel a certain way. Like I feel validated or I feel seen or I feel this illuminate something. And then the feeling gets undermined when the concept is challenged. And then it's like, the only way to respond to that is you're an asshole. Yeah. 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 David, what was your perspective back then? Back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) When he was like 60. When, when, you know, all this shit came around and, and the new, it seemed like, a, at least for me, when I was reading the forums back then, it seemed like a pretty big deal to me. And I was just wondering if, if, if you saw it that way and did, was there some kind of ripple effects on the forums and did you see people's perspectives on the instincts changing or what was that like on your point of view? There was a lot of, um, t- the way I describe it on that old Riso Hudson discussion board <clears throat> was a lot of work got done there. Okay. Um uh there was a there was a whole lot of not work. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, 95% maybe not work. But um <laughs> um and as I, any good forum should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I was I was a part of the troublemaking. Um but uh yeah, no, there were <clears throat> a few people that were incredibly serious insightful um uh interesting minds and uh uh and and intuitive also um and there were and it would happen sometimes that um a new person would join and and you could tell that that person knew which small set of few people um had the interesting sort of cutting edge thing and not just not just and and that not being about just about being whatever cool and interesting but actually getting at something that was true that had resonance um 
and uh yeah so you would you would watch certain people and certain people would connect um and I, I yeah i mean i really think some some things happen there that you know i don't know if this is an exaggeration but i think didn't happen anywhere else in the world relative to the conversation about the instincts hmm. um yeah i agree yeah and uh um there was one woman that for example besides what we've been referencing here this bit about um those notes from one of those uh seminars or whatever you call it that russ did um uh there was one woman that had these occasional um really insightful and condensed insights into especially the stackings and i've shown you guys um for example, that there was one woman that wrote about the writing styles of each of the instinctual stackings, right? The six different stackings. And it's just about three or four sentences for each instinctual stacking. And it's, uh, and it's, um, uh, was written to convey the tone of each of the stackings um and you can and even though it's about writing styles of of fictional fiction authors uh you can use that um those are those were seeds to me uh that conveyed <clears throat> you know the 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 stackings as very separate kinds of energies you know archetypal um tonal creatures <laughs> or whatever you know that um yeah. that light up where whatever person and personality type they they're set into or you know or comes from them or um if you if you want to think of the the stacking sort of being the root system and then the enneagram type is actually uh, somewhat secondary a response to or a management system for the stacking um so uh yeah that was there was a lot of important stuff that happened there and and john were you about to say something yeah do you know what happened to her uh because i met her actually in person mm -hmm. uh went by vo right yes and uh i met her on the same trip i met Alaria on oh i didn't realize wow. that was the same trip yeah i met her in uh, milan mm -hmm. and uh definitely a five <laughs> and uh yeah kind of a character but i never heard from her again yeah she was definitely veiled um <laughs> oh that was the veiled one <laughs> yeah. yeah um nice. yeah she's great. she's great and and we had a sort of almost um we played around with a sort of adversarial relationship to some degree because i went in there all cocky i was going to be the counterphobic nine or, or something and make a bunch of noise and not be invisible right uh, i was going to be <laughs> i was kind of experimenting on that board with non-nineness but of course it all comes out nine somehow anyway but anyway <laughs> um uh but yeah, that was uh, 
it was her and, and there was a few other people and there were some there were some interesting conflicts um that turned into things i don't know i mean that you know some of those that gets in too deep into you know all kinds of talking about specific people that yeah our audience here is not gonna know about but overall yeah there was um <clears throat> well the other thing that happened just briefly is that an, another woman separate other person who's happens to be a five also mentioned something one day about this uh buddhist symbol called the bhava chakra which we touched on in one or two of the earlier conversations here and uh she mentioned this the hungry ghosts and for some reason i immediately just clasped onto that and and then um and and i thought for some reason that that had something to do with either sexual self-pres or self-pres sexual instinctual stacking mm -hmm. and then when i looked <clears throat> at the actual symbol and it has these six segments in it when it when i realized that there were six of them just as there are six instinctual stackings i said oh it's going to be the stackings i know it right now like before i even started and then and then it and then it was wow. <laughs> and and so it was <laughs> and uh and that was um that was pretty amazing um to for that whole that and that's led to I've been sort of on that journey with that symbol for about seven years or so. And, you know, <clears throat> I've been on and off toying with writing and I've got, you know, about 350 pages of notes for a book. Um, but I'm kind of glad, you know, that I didn't do anything sooner as far as putting out something. Cause I would probably just want to pitch the whole thing. It's cause it's, this is so critical what's come up with all of that and and the correlations are um pretty amazing those are long conversations but uh so that was another thing that happened there um that was rather tectonic you know plate shift underneath me about the enneagram and so on david do you know uh much about the history of the baba chakra I've read some of the history, um, but where were you going to go with that? Well, so on one hand, you know, there could just be a way that symbols are speaking to each other, you know, that have no conscious basis or relationship, you know, or the psyche, you know, produces this symbol based on the experience of stackings without there being any conscious Yes. You know, uh, just it's, it becomes an intuitive expression of, of something that is a huge facet of human personality and experience, but that there's not a lot of language for. Yes. And on the other hand, you know, and that may be so. On the other hand, um, I recently, you know, I've been a major focus of mine through my studies of Egypt and Gurdjieff has been the history of the Enneagram. And not just the Enneagram, but the whole Western spiritual milieu and understanding going back to Egypt. And, uh, but I recently, I don't know much about uh, Eastern spirituality, but um, there's some crossover with some Sufi things and some Tibetan things, especially Northern Sufism. But 
I have found this symbol called the Kala Chakra and tried it. I don't know too much about it. And I got a book on it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm wondering, like, it's, it seems intuitively like it may be almost like an enigmatic Bhava Chakra. Mm-hmm. And it means the wheel of time. And, uh, you know, I know very, like, even reading about it, it's very, it's not really yet where in the book I'm looking at, it's not really about what this thing is, but sort of setting up the milieu and the understanding. But anyway, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see if there is uh, any kind of relationship there. You had mentioned it to me, and I did a, a light touch into it for a little bit one day. But I'd, yeah, we need to maybe talk about it some more, or you might show me what you're looking at. Yeah, I got. I just have a book called The Wheel of Time, The Call of Chakra in Context, but it started to pop up. You know, it's like, like I, I was at my Gurdjieff teacher's place and uh, he just got a new bookshelf of like a bunch of, like, I guess he just had his stuff in storage or something. And immediately my eye goes to the Kala Chakra. There's a book on the mm-hmm. Kala Chakra and, and it's just started to pop up places. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What What is it about it? Is, can you say briefly that have, making you think it, pings into the enneagram Does so it have a nineism or something or yeah i believe it's actually a tenism of 10 worlds but i think the the ten, the first and the last world are sort of one and the same like alpha mm-hmm. omega kind of thing but uh so i you know let's see how to how to not drag this shit out uh so there 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 are different facets of the enneagram when you look, when you talk about enneagram history, there's the symbol, there is the understanding of types, and then at certain points, like in Kabbalah and in, um, I believe in an Egyptian system, there is a blending or marriage of the types and a system of worlds of different um, degrees of consciousness that shows up in Gurdjieff's Ray of Creation but it's separate from the Enneagram. And so I believe that the Enneagram uh, of type and the Enneagram of worlds may have been one system and the relationship of the, uh, the symbol to those worlds and types may have come later, but I think it's super ancient. And I think it's one of the most powerful uh, symbols or schemas in human history. And it's so full of meaning, and I think that the Bhava Chakra, or excuse me, the Kala Chakra, is maybe an Eastern version of this same system. Do you have any sense of? Does it mention the Bhava Chakra and what you're looking at? Not thus far. Like my my study of it thus far is pretty superficial, and a lot of the ways that I've studied a little bit of Tibetan Buddhism, um, you know, the way that it is laid out is is different than than western systems where mm-hmm. you know western systems it's like uh human beings are asleep and this is how you work with it you know this kind of a thing it's sort of uh uh didactic whereas eastern stuff is a little bit more like impressionistic and less specific mm-hmm. and so it's not laying things out quite as like sequentially and concretely so like uh i don't know it's it's hard for me to to encapsulate in words and language but it's it hasn't been so 
Western yet. And so <laughs> right. I'm trying to, I got to, I got to do some more digging. Does, um, uh, what are its origins relative to Buddha? Is it coming from? Supposedly, okay. but a lot of times, uh, you know, so Buddha was a lot more esoteric than people generally understand. Mm-hmm. But, and, and they say that the Buddha taught this, but sometimes when they say that, it doesn't mean the Buddha literally taught it like when he was alive. Mm. Like sometimes it means there was some kind of impression, inspiration from on high or from meditating on the Buddha. So I think the Buddha actually did teach this, but don't really know. That's yet. what's said to be the case with the Baba Chakra symbol is that Buddha himself designed it, that mapped, did that you know, produce, generated that map, if you will, that symbol. Yeah, I think that's the same case here with the Kala Chakra. And, and Buddhism, you know, generally is, is described as a psycholo- you know, a, a psychological religion, if you will, right? It's not really a right. religion. Uh, it's more a philosophy or worldview. And a discipline. Or right, right. Um, so it's interesting that and 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 i should say briefly and um I, I i'm mapping the instincts and the instinctual stackings to the bhava chakra but ostensibly you know there's no mention of the instincts in the original texts um i'm making that leap but it but it makes uh some sense because uh you know just at a basic level that you know how we understand the instincts as being um sort of prime drivers of our psychology and 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 the deepest most powerful traps that we get into uh uh are, are stemming from our identification with the instincts so it makes sense given all of that 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 the association could be there hidden so to speak just waiting for me to come reveal it you <laughs> and only you david gray only <laughs> <laughs> the god the nine god <laughs> yeah see hey nancy when you when you uh were typing it for did you, were you typing as a sexual four? I thought that I was sexual dominant. Yeah. Okay. And mm-hmm. how did you like, was it us or did you have any previous experience that made you think different? We or did the what? collage thing with her. Oh, right? that's right. Okay. Yeah. But I didn't really fully believe the collage to be honest with you. Nobody ever does at yeah, first. I know. Um, it just seems, <laughs> it seems too simple, but um <laughs> I didn't really understand the instincts for a long time um, until it was actually you, Emika, that pointed out the tea thing at the restaurant. Oh, yeah. Oh, mm. shit. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's this? <laughs> oh, Spill <we're>, that tea. <laughs> <laughs> Lol. Um, <laughs> we were sitting at like dinner or something, and um, this was at one of the conferences, and they brought, I asked for hot green tea and they brought it out in a french press and i was sitting beside emika and i looked at him and i was like oh, i love that they spring it out in a french press because there's nothing worse than oversteeped green tea <laughs> and he was like 
yeah, you're a self press. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. I was like, oh, ding, okay, ding, ding. I get it. <laughs> nothing worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's truly nothing worse. It's bitter. It's just pointless. Worse you than might your lover leaving you. Oh, I'd rather have genocide. Than- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She was so passionate about it, and I was like, "We're talking about tea, <laughs> dude. Tea is life." <laughs> That's it. There it is. Yeah. There it is. I think, John, you once described uh, a self-prez person having um, like a sensual relationship with things. Mm. And I was like, yep. mm -hmm." Like, (laughs) my, like, I, like, love bed. Like, like it's, (laughs) like it's my boyfriend. Like, (laughs) yeah. So I, still know I, I, so for, for anybody listening. (laughs) Um, I often teach with my friend, Julie Harris, uh, you know, workshops and classes and stuff like this through New York Enneagram and, uh, (laughs) dot com. (laughs) And, uh, so one of the, one of the things that she came up with actually, like, she's pretty brilliant at practices and, um, we do this, uh, meditation, like a visualization meditation on basically instinctual resources. And so we'll like go through this thing where we, you know, we, we get everybody to like sense their bodies and to chill and to be breathing. And, you know, we start with, um, have everybody close their eyes and kind of be blank for a minute. And then we have them imagine or visualize something that like their bed or uh, a food they really like, or, um, you know, some kind of self-prez object. And Julie is much better. I am than getting all the self-prized stuff because she's self-prized. But you know, sensing like the way your body actually physiologically responds to these things, you know. And then from there, you know, we drop that, and then we go into all right. Imagine uh, somebody that you have a real strong crush on that you find very attractive or sexy. Um, this kind of a thing, and then you know, drop that, and then imagine like greeting your friend at the airport. Uh, you know, like seeing somebody you really care about, um, being, you know, this kind of a thing. And the, the, the physiological response and excitation is really revealing about, and specificity about uh, type and instinct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how specific you could get in describing each of those things. Would and, indicate, and, yeah. and even noticing like oh like the green tea like oh i'm like i love my bed you know like i like my bed but i don't have that kind of feeling about it i'm like it was how specific she was <laughs> it wasn't like oh i like, love green tea it was like it has to be this way and this way and this way and i was like i, I don't even know why you're still talking about tea well, like <laughs> specific and immersed immersed david like what's the self-pressed thing that you just love Oh, food, uh, bed. Uh, <laughs> He's like, I can't pick. It's all of it. Yeah. <laughs> like with uh, your bike? Yeah. Yeah. Like I your do. Your five hour bike rides? I do very long bicycle rides and I do it. Uh, it's especially exciting and interesting to me when it's 105 degrees here in Texas. <laughs> and, and, I'm, and it's like me fighting the elements right mm. and oh. and and uh it's got that kind of um you know intensity of uh you know yeah just 
want being capable in mm -hmm. my body and knowing that I have that resource to generate that much energy and to, uh, and so on. And then of course I do the self-pres thing of I've got this pouch on the <laughs> handlebars that I put those frozen blue uh, ice things, you know, that you put in like a little freezers or whatever. And, and I put four ice cold waters. So four. it's 105 degrees. And then, you know, I stop every once in a while or just while I'm still going dip into an ice cold water when it's 105 degrees. So that's another self prezzy satisfaction thing, right? Hmm. Maybe you your peanut butter and banana Peanut sandwiches. butter and banana for 10 years every morning. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so, so what's, what's, you know, that you, so first of all, the specificity of like the little, like, mm, like is big self-pres or, you know, just indicative yeah. of the instinct, but also, you know, what you're bringing up that I think maybe people listening, uh, if anybody listens to this is, uh, that that's easily overlooked in self-pres is that physical robust yeah like challenging oneself like passionate about like doing physical feats and stuff like most yeah. uh like sexual one of the one of the things that has needed to be improved in the sexual instinct description uh has is that sexual is not just a generic intimacy or excuse me intensity instinct yeah. or excitation and that a lot of like people that do a lot of extreme physical stuff and athletes and all that are are usually self-pres dominant. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm contemplating um, through hiking the Appalachian Trail in the next year or two, which is 2,200 miles, by the way. Jesus. And that's yeah. like, like when I think about it, I'm like, yes. Like yeah. I don't die. And, and, in, oh, the on, and in the mm. online world, self-pres is often depicted as it's almost um, like phobic, right? Yeah, it's like, like it's they like, don't want to go outside. Yeah, like it's like it's like it's super self-protective mm -hmm. rather than competent and uh, getting off on paying the bills or some shit. Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> even self-preservation people hate, but they do it because they have to. Whereas a self-preservation yeah. blind person will probably just ignore it. Right. Do you know how often I look at my credit card account and just pay like five dollars on it just for funsies? Wow. Oh god. Oh, that's painful actually for me. What? Yeah. <laughs> Please don't go in. Did that. you just say? <laughs> I uh, oh, man. today. Uh, this call is over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's stop. <laughs> <laughs> I cashed in on my rewards points and I was like, ah, oh, yes, eight dollars. Done. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. We might yeah, I'm to, obviously sexual dominant, guys. Yeah, <laughs> sexual. We might four. need to rethink this relationship. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! What's another uh, perverse self-pres thing? I, I'm, for me, there's a lot of touch stuff. Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, I think that's partly nine, and it might even be somewhat maybe more indulgent with self-pres sexual as a as opposed to nancy your self-pres social i don't know mm -hmm. um but yeah just sensual touch you know fabrics i mean since i was a child <laughs> i would touch clothes i mean touching the clothes when i was even a child was as, was as important 
like if I liked something, I needed to feel whether it felt good on my hand, mm-hmm. right? And stuff like that. And I was always attracted to lux- luxurious fabrics, not not because of the cost, but it, there, there were usually just, you know, uh, a finer touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, me and my my partner, who is also self-pres, um, we will go through a store and he'll be like, oh my God, feel how soft this is. And we'll just stand there and be like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so <Yeah>. nice. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> like we have a moment over how soft yes. something is. It's hilarious. Sexual types are <laughs> side-eyeing both of you. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with these people? Like, you insane people. Yeah. Laura, Laura has a much, she's sexual dominant, but she has a much stronger self-present I do. Yeah. And she, she often, I don't know how sincere it is, but she often wonders if I'm sexual social, which I don't think so at all. Cause I, right. But um, she, she also like, she loves to save and she like gets, feels that like a, a dopamine rush when she gets a deal and i mean part of it i think she's a very sensate person uh but yeah like fabrics and soft things and creams she's all like she gets a thing from hmm. much more than i do I'm trying to think of how my self-press shows up um one thing I really like about nines is they're really lazy and, and like to just <laughs> <laughs> stay home and just veg out in bed. And um, it's like I, I have like split personality in, in terms of I can be really assertive and just be like around a lot of people. I can seem like a really big personality or I can just be I can be like a nine at home and just mm-hmm. veg out on the couch and not leave the house for days and and just like have my food it's kind of like just i don't have to do anything i don't have to see anyone i can just be here in this room and it's great like that sense of i'm just completely isolated from everyone and everything um in my bed or looking up enneagram stuff or whatever it is Fiving like, out. That sounds like fiving out to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely, like, <laughs> you like went to your five space. You're like, yes. Yeah. Just like completely isolated, completely isolated. <laughs> I can look out the window. There's people walking around, but I don't have to talk to anybody. It's great. <laughs> I, I, uh, you know, I need a lot of alone time or I get sick and I get overwhelmed like really easily. Like I'm super withdrawn, but, uh, when I'm by myself, I don't really veg out really. Like, I mean, maybe I spend too much time on the internet, but like, I don't have that feeling of like, like I never like just chill. Like I'm always doing something like painting or or reading something and there's always, or like working on something and it's interesting. I don't know if it's like a wing thing or it's not being a body type or something, but Mm -hmm. uh, even my vegging is not very veggie. (laughs) I guess what I mean when I say veg is that, for me as a A-Wing 7, I mean, like, I'm not moving. Because <laughs> I'm obviously online, like, chatting and doing whatever else on my computer. But I think there's a lot of, uh, I put a lot of pressure on myself to be doing things constantly, which means, like, making things happen. Where So when I think of, when I say vegging out, it's like, I'm not actually making anything happen. I'm just here on my yeah. computer reading or researching. But it's still busyness, but it's just happening mentally or conceptually but i'm not actually like actually moving my body that i i, yeah, I think i beat yeah. myself up a, a lot 
for just being a pretty lazy person in that respect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of the eights in my life, like, get up super early in the morning just so that they can, like, read for, like, two hours. And they'll just sit there in, like, complete stillness and just read and that's their time and you don't fuck with that time but then the second they're done they're like you know ready to attack the world yeah. and i've just always found that interesting about the eights in my life i'm like you guys are have that precious <laughs> illness which is so bizarre to me because it's not at any other time in your life oh like trump's personal time uh, executive executive <laughs> executive is it executive yeah executive time, time yeah ah, that sounds dirty <laughs> probably is oh god <laughs> yeah i grew up my dad's an eight and so i i um an eight wing nine as well and so just he was very he was very like loud um when he wanted to be like a very loud person but there's four of us four kids but he always had like his time like away from everyone and you dare not don't even think about (laughs) bothering him nobody could talk to him like he was doing his reading and his writing or whatever um he had his like own little corner desk and things like that so it's just kind of funny to see how aids can really like cocoon away from everyone they just have to have that I uh, I hate to uh, be the self press social here, but I am very tired. <laughs> yep, we're it's past been an hour. hour. Yep. I'm so enjoying the flow of this right now, but I might fall asleep. So. All right, I think we've got enough for episode. Yeah, this is good. Mm-hmm. I'm going to prioritize the flow, and I think we should keep going. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to prioritize sleep, so. (laughs) Nancy, I I hope you have the most uh, restorative, restful, deepest sleep. Oh, thank you. As if you were bathing in a a big cup of warm green tea. With lavender? Can we have lavender in it? I was going to say milk, but I guess. Oh, no, not milk. (laughs) Milk is like you get out and you're going to smell like that's going to be weird, dude. Yeah, I think that was so particular. My Introduced God. a lot of vividness. I like the image more. It was kind of a mess. Well, was yeah. Definitely, yeah, definitely. No, 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 no. A bunch of white stuff so all over her. Yeah, yeah that, that was much more <laughs> sexual, <laughs> sexual image there for sure. If I'm going to bathe in white stuff, sure, shit ain't going to be milk. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the opener for this. <laughs> just, just play that. The leading. Three guys here, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>